in our time of living at this particular time, culturally, one of the things that is looked down upon the most for Christians is our stance that we hold when someone asks ask us, is, is Jesus the only way to heaven? And when that question comes up, they're insinuating, you are so narrow if you're saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And you may be thinking that this morning based on how you grew up culturally and, and, and the way in which you've been taught. It's, it's jammed down our throats that that is one of the most mean, divisive things that you can say to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. In fact, when you say something like that, what comes into people's minds are things like, well, what about, what about the person that grew up in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa that never had the opportunity to hear the gospel? What about that person? Or, or, or what about the people in Asia that, that grew up in, 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 in their culture? They, even, they never even heard the name of Christ. What, what about those people? And in their minds, they go to those kind of places. And we may have a tendency to back up and say, okay, well, I, you know, I don't know about... And, and waffle on some of these things of, of not knowing how to respond. When someone goes to that place and asks those questions, I begin by saying, well, I, I went to the deepest, darkest parts of Africa. I told them, you don't need to worry about that. But in all reality, you think of there, there, there are places, without a doubt, that there are unreached people groups. There are areas in the world where there's unreached people groups. I, I pray to God that we would, as a church, have a passion for unreached people groups to go to those places and to proclaim the good news. When someone says that, I'll frequently take them to Romans chapter 1. Um, let's just turn there for a moment before we get into our text. In Romans chapter 1... It deals with, with some of these, these, these same questions. In verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I'll take him to this particular text to begin. Because when, when someone says, how can God send someone to hell that has never heard the gospel, has never even heard the name of Jesus? or grew up in a Buddhist home, or in a Muslim home, or in a Hindu home, or in an atheist home? Like, How could God ever send someone like that to hell? I'll take them to this text where it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The idea of suppressing is pushing down. They push down the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God 
into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And so from there he says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. It's one of the best texts that you can bring someone to that asks that particular question because what it's telling us in this particular text is that they suppress the truth. God's revealed himself to them and they worship the creature rather than the creator. They weren't thankful. They didn't want to go after him. They went in the opposite direction. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single person has heard of Jesus Christ or heard of the full gospel and having that explained to them. But they've rejected God before that. They've rejected even any idea of God and accountability to him and his holiness and have run in a direction opposite of him to where God's not obligated in any way to say, well, let me tell you more. They've already hated him, gone in a direction opposite of him and have run in that way. He reveals himself to them. Even the eternal Godhead. He tells us this in this particular text. He's revealed himself. They've suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. But people may continue and, 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 and think of just the culture in which we live in, in which you are to be all willing to compromise and to just get along and the idea of to each their own or or you have no right to force your beliefs upon anybody um, even the idea of proselytizing and sharing the gospel it's something that is looked so down upon in our culture as far as like why will you try to change me or the idea that all roads lead to heaven you can get there in all different kinds of ways there's one clip in which I watched someone who's uh, incredibly famous in our culture, and that's Oprah, where she blatantly says that Jesus is not the only way to God. She says, how can there be only one way to heaven or to God? And one woman in the audience said, what about Jesus? And Oprah says, what about Jesus? He couldn't possibly be the only way. I listened to another clip of a famous pastor who, on the Larry King show, is asked, is Jesus the only way? And he, he just dances around the question, like Bojangles or something. Like, just dances. That's the first thing that came to my mind. I, I wasn't around when he was there, but... When I was a kid, my horse's name was Bojangles, so I knew who he was. I don't know dancing. I don't. I, I don't. I, I've never watched Dancing with the Stars. Um, and my tendency is to say, "I'm sorry. Please forgive me." I, I, I don't dislike dancing. I just don't dance. I, you know, I, I dance with my little girl, but that's it. And our tendency is to like not offend anybody. Those of you guys that have to watch every episode of that, I've never watched an episode of it. I'm kind of proud of it. And and but you. 
you, you can, and, and we, we're careful. We're careful even not to offend people over dancing with the stars. And yet, the gospel is such that God tells us that the gospel will be offensive. It's not a matter of our choice as to whether or not we want to decide whether Jesus is the only way. God decides that. Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, says this, a personal relationship with Almighty God through his son, Jesus Christ, is the only thing that can fill the void in the human heart. This is not a matter of opinion. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One way, one Savior, no exceptions. I agree with him wholeheartedly in that. There are no exceptions to this. And my encouragement to you this morning is to listen from God's word, to hear what it is that God says regarding, is Jesus the only way? Here we have a setting in in Acts chapter 4 in which we looked last week at this lame man that had been lame for over 40 years who leaves the temple gate walking and leaping and praising God, legs restored, jumps up, totally healed. And now the opportunity has been there for the preaching of the gospel. And from there, you, you hear where it says in, in, in Acts chapter one, verse, Acts chapter 4, verse 1, now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, And the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the, in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The text here is incredibly clear as to what's occurring. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The setting here is Here you have Peter and John there before the priest, captain of the temple, the Sadducees. These are the most powerful people in society. Not only them, but you you have 
the rulers, the elders, the scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, John and Alexander being a part of that, they're gathered there together in Jerusalem. And as, as, as these men are before these people, we see the first persecution taking place towards the early church. Peter and John and the Christians, the other disciples, have preached the word, have proclaimed the word. There are thousands of people getting saved. Remember at the beginning, you had over 500 that saw Christ, and then you see over 100 that are gathered together, and then you see 3,000 come to know Christ. And now we're at a place where it tells us the number of men came to be about 5,000 that came to know Christ of this. There is an explosion that's taking place as far as the gospel going forward. The Holy Spirit is doing this mighty, mighty work in the hearts of these people to where the gospel is being proclaimed and their blindness is being removed and hearts are being radically changed and God is saving thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I mean, here it says that there were... The number of men came to be about 5,000. And so you can imagine that there's a huge number of women as well. And the church is just exploding in, in growth. But the message is clear. You see here that, that they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people. They were greatly disturbed that the disciples were teaching the people. Who are they to teach? They're not the learned ones. They're not the ones that have been to all the schools. They're not the ones that are the Sadducees or the ones that are the, the priestly class. They're not the ones that have been commissioned to do these things. Who are these disciples to teach? And specifically, hard to say, um, to teach and preach Jesus in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. That Jesus rose again from the dead. Not only did Jesus rise again from the dead, but all who believe in him will also rise again from the dead. And they're preaching this, and they're greatly disturbed to where they lay hands on them and put them in custody or throw them in jail until the next day. So here, the word is being proclaimed in front of the people in whom have the highest authority and power in society, and they're thrown in jail. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of them came to about 5,000. The word is being proclaimed and the people are believing. They're believing. There's the proclamation of the word. There's the proclamation of the gospel. And they are believing. I pray that we would think that way. I pray that, that we would have such boldness in the proclamation of the gospel to be willing, whoever it is that we are in front of, that we wouldn't dance when the question comes up, is Jesus, are you saying that Jesus is the only way? I pray that we would respond, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is what... God's word teaches. There is no other way. When the question comes up of, well, what about all the other religions? What about everybody else? I pray that we would have the boldness to be able to say, it's not true. 
It's a lie. They've gone after other gods. They've, they, they be, they've begun to worship the creation instead of the creator. If, if all roads led to, to, to God, if all roads led to heaven, why would God send his only son to die on the cross for our sins, to take the wrath that we deserved upon himself, to take our sin upon himself and die in our stead if there was any other way. He never would do that. And so you see that there are many who are believing. I pray that, that, that not only would there be boldness, but that there would be clarity in the way in which we present the gospel. The question comes up not only of do you do you really believe that Jesus is the only way? But we're also belittled in our time of, of do you really believe in hell? Do you really believe that hell exists? Or do you really believe in the devil? Or do you really believe in, in God as being a God of wrath? That's the God that you believe in. I pray that we would be those that are very biblical in the way that we answer these questions and that we'd have boldness in it. To be able to say, yes, absolutely, I believe that God's wrath is going to come upon those who don't believe. I believe in a literal hell. I believe that the devil exists. I believe that there's only one way to get to heaven and that is through Christ and belief in him, faith in him. And trust that as the word goes forward that the Lord would bring in the harvest. It wouldn't be in our craftiness to try to present a better gospel than what is here. You can't make the gospel better. We don't get to decide that. Just as Billy or Franklin Graham said, there's one way one Savior, no exceptions. I think of 276 years ago when Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. <laughs> that sermon today, I can't imagine it being circulated in the way in which it was at that time. I mean, the most read sermon, published sermon, in all of, of history that's been printed, with the exception of the Sermon on the Mount. The most printed sermon in... Today they look upon that as that, that is like... That, that, that guy was hell, fire, and brimstone. He was just mean. He said horrible things. Look at how crazy these Puritans were back then. But I think at the same time, how loving was he to preach truth? He, he preached from a text that came from Deuteronomy 32, 35, where the text says, their foot shall slip in due time. Their foot shall slip in due time. And he began to go through just a number of different things as far as what that meant. And he begins, he, uh, let me just give you four points that, that he begins with, where he says, 
that the unbeliever, that they were always exposed to destruction as one that stands or walks in a slippery place is always exposed to fall. If, if you are in a slippery place, you are exposed to fall. If you've ever been in a snowy place where the sidewalk has frozen over and you are in tennis shoes, you will surely slip in due time. It will happen. You're in a place in which sooner or later you will slip. No matter how great of a balance you think you have, you will slip. And so he's saying they've always been in a place where they were going to slip. Number two, he says, it implies that they were always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction as he that walks in slippery places is every moment liable to fall. He cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning. Some of you right now are picturing when that happened to you. You slipped and you fell and there was no warning None whatsoever. All of a sudden, you were standing, and then you were not. It happened quickly and swiftly, abruptly. There was no planning. It just happened. The third point, he says, is another thing implied is that they are liable to fall of themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another. As he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. You you don't need any help. When you're in a slippery place, you don't need someone to push you down. You can do it all by yourself. All by yourself, you are fully capable, and you will fall. And then he goes from there to the last point. He says that the reason why they're not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time is not come. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight, God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then at that very instant, they shall fall into destruction. And so his point in this is, you're going to fall. Sooner or later, you are going to fall. It's not going to need someone to push you. By your own weight, it will happen. You will slip and you will go into eternity in hell. And he preaches this sermon, begins with those four points, and goes from there to just... Tell them of their wickedness. To tell them of their sin. He says that the wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames Do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit has opened its mouth under them. He says, when people hear about hell, almost every person, he says, when they hear of hell, they flatter themselves that they'll escape it. They tell themselves, I'm not going to go to hell. I won't go to hell. I mean, if you ask the majority of people, do you think you're going to go to hell? Almost everybody will say, like, no, I'm good. They flatter themselves that they'll escape it. Edward says he depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself 
in what he's done and what he is now doing or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind of how he shall avoid damnation and, and flatters himself as he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. They, they hear indeed that, that there are, are but few saved and that the greater part of men have died and have gone to hell, but each one imagines that he, that he lays out matters better for his own escape than the others have done. He does not intend to come to that place of torment. He says within himself that he intends to take effectual care and to order matters so for himself as not to fail. The, the natural man just says, I'm not going to hell. That won't be me. He talks about those that are already in hell, those that have already slipped, those that have already gone. He says if we could speak with them, if we could inquire of them one by one, whether they expected when alive and when they used to hear about hell, ever to be subjects of that misery, we doubtless should hear one and another reply saying this, no, I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme was good. I intended to take effectual care, but it came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at that time and in that matter. It came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I was flattering myself, pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And when I was saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. If, if, if we could go to hell and talk to someone, they, they all would say, I, I thought I was good. I thought my plan was better. I thought I had it all figured out. Edwards from there says, it's true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you're every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising, the waxing more and, and waxing more and more mighty. And there's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and pressed hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, if it was 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. It's happening. The bow of God's wrath is bent, the arrow already made ready on the string. The justice bends that arrow at your heart. The strain and strains the bow. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all of you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from the dead and sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life are in the hands of an angry God. I mean, he makes it so clear, like the bow is being pulled back, the arrow's ready to be sunk into you. And as people are hearing this, as far as the wrath of God, I mean, it's just the mere pleasure of God that you don't go right the second. It's the mere pleasure of God that it hasn't happened yet. 
You, you, you're, you're in a place where you can fall all by yourself. You don't need anybody else to help you. You flatter yourself that you're okay. You flatter yourself that there's another way. You flatter yourself that you have this thing all figured out. But those people in hell, they thought the same exact way. And unless you have been born again, unless your faith is in Christ, unless you're a new creation in Christ and your sin has been removed by the blood of Christ and your faith in him, you will slip. It will happen. And you know what happened? I mean, this message is preached, and I just read a portion of it. It may feel like a lot of it, but I read a portion of it. People were crying out from the audience saying, what must we do to be saved? People were fainting just from hearing this man preach in this audience in Connecticut. Fainting. This sermon was published, and you just see this explosion of People coming to know Christ and believing in Christ. You have the Great Awakening occurring and, and, and universities popping up all over the places, churches popping up all over the place. You have people coming to know Christ, and what's happening is you have people that are not compromising on sin and the wrath of God and hell and the gospel and faith in Christ, and there is only one way to get to heaven, and that is through Christ. There are no exceptions, and you hear people just come to know Christ all over the place as the gospel. Hi. Am I back? See? Am I good? Hi. Can you hear me now? As the gospel is proclaimed, hi. You see, you see God do an awesome, awesome work, an awesome work in the church. Here in this particular passage in Acts, there's persecution coming their way. They're being thrown into prison. And yet when you look at the message that's been spoken here, they begin... By making some things very clear. The preaching that Christ has risen again from the dead. And that we also will rise again with him. From there you see in, in, in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Peter could have been ashamed or he could have pulled back or he could have been intimidated by all these people, but he says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all. This is what I want you to know. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom... You crucified. That Jesus is the one that has done this. It's not us. It's Jesus. The one whom you crucified. Now when we read that, there's some that would say that, be careful with that, because we don't want to appear to be anti-Semitic at all. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I don't want to appear to be anti-Semitic at all. Love God's people, that we, we see a covenant that he made with the nation of Israel. We see promises that are given to the nation of Israel. We see that, that he will bless those that bless them. But it doesn't change the fact that they need the gospel. It doesn't change the fact that in this particular text, he specifically says to them, 
that they crucified him. The one whom you crucified. You're guilty. And like I said last week, we're all guilty. It's our sins that place Christ upon the cross. But God raised him from the dead. How did he rise from the dead? God raised him from the dead. By him, this man stands here whole before you. It's Christ that's made him so that he can walk. Not only made him so he could walk, but changed his heart. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. Now he's quoting from Scripture, but he changes the word here to you builders. You're you're the builders. You're the ones that rejected him. The stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. You did this, but God had a plan. You rejected the stone, but God said that would happen, and he's become the chief cornerstone. And then from there, he says, nor is there salvation in any other. Those words to us ought to be incredibly precious. Salvation. There's not salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Edwards got that. We get that here. We are in desperate need of salvation. We need to be saved. We are in desperate need of being rescued and saved and made alive. Scripture makes it so clear that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. There's nothing that we could ever do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that we could ever do in and of ourselves to make it so that we could earn heaven. We must be saved. Our feet are in slippery places. We could fall at any time. If In, in Edward's sermons, he, he speaks to the congregation. He says, it's, it's, it's somewhat miraculous that you're still here now. Some of you, he says in this congregation, some of you who are not saved, it's, it's amazing that you were able to get up this morning. It's amazing that you made it up until this sermon. It's amazing that God has not let you fall in in the midst of this sermon. It's by God's grace. It's his good pleasure. It's his mere pleasure that you're still here, that there's still time to believe upon Christ. And he, and he just emphasizes that over and over and over again. Like You could fall at any time. You don't need any help. You don't know what's going to happen. You're going to fall. And when you fall, he says, it's going to be like a rock going through a spider web. There's nothing that can stop you. And you don't need anybody to push you. You're prone towards that. We must be saved. We need salvation. We need new hearts. We need our sin removed. We need a foreign righteousness that comes from Christ. We need to be made in his image. We need that. We need him to do the work, and it only comes through faith in him. It's not our works. It's not how good we live. It's by recognizing that we are sinners that are in desperate need of salvation, and we know that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved than the name of Jesus. We know that it's not a matter of obeying these five pillars. It's not a matter of going to church. It's not a matter of building up good karma. It's not a matter of doing 
any other thing of, of, of what any religion could ever offer. God says there's only one way, and that is through Christ. It's always been that way. I mean, you think of Exodus where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Don't make any other gods for yourself. There is no other way. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Mark 16, 15 says, Jesus says to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. John 3, 36 says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 1 Timothy 2, 5 for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. 1 John 5.11, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this, is, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. In the book of Revelation, you see that John's there and he sees this great multitude, which no one can number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is so clear in Scripture that there is one way to heaven, and that's Christ. Those verses, one after another after another, I pray that it is convincing to you that we need to have boldness that there is one way if a house was on fire and the only way is to go out the window onto the roof and to climb down. And if the person doesn't go out that way, they are sure to die. How wicked would it be to say, I, I, just, I, don't, I don't know, I, 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 I don't want to offend anybody and I don't, I don't want to say that. People don't like that. I'm, you, just go whatever way you want, and I hope it works. I'm, just, I'm not one to judge. I'm not going to say stuff like that. It, it would be the most wicked, cruel thing that you could do. Rather say, no, no, you, the, the house is on fire. You open that door, you're dead. You only could go out the window. This is the only way to go, and you'll be fine. This is not the message of Reverence Bible Church. This is the message of Almighty God given to us in Holy Scripture. It is clear. It is perfect. It is true. It is right. And, brothers and sisters, there is not salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. May today be the day of salvation for anyone who is here that is walking still on slippery ground. You will fall. In due time, you will fall. And yet the free message of the gospel that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, it is the best news that you or I could ever hear. 
And may the joy of knowing that he has given us a firm foundation and we stand in his robes of righteousness. May that give us great joy as we conclude our service with a time of communion. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for this passage that you've given us. Um, We're thankful for the boldness of Peter and John as they proclaim your word, as they make it so clear that there's, there's not salvation in any other Regardless of who's there, regardless of of whether they're going to be thrown in jail, they have such boldness in the gospel. And you just see thousands of people come to know Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would have that kind of boldness, regardless of what society tells us, regardless of what people will say about us, regardless of whether they think we're narrow, regardless of whether they laugh at us, regardless of if if we lose friends, Lord. I pray that we'd have such boldness in the gospel that we proclaim it, knowing that the same God who changed hearts at that time and brought Thousands of people to know you can also change hearts today and bring people into his kingdom. May we have boldness in the proclamation of the gospel, not only boldness, but urgency in proclaiming it. The best news that anybody could ever hear is salvation that comes through Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.